Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. We've met a lot of ghosts over the last few weeks in this series on the paranormal in American history. Ghosts, specters, spooks, enough ectoplasm and ethereality to do Egon Spengler himself proud. This week, we're traveling back in time to meet a very different kind of ghost, the kind that wears leather boots and rides a horse. No, not the phantom adversary of Ichabod Crane, but a very real, very suspicious apparition from the era of the American Revolution. Our guide to this bizarre but true story is Peter Zablocki, author of The 1788 Morristown Ghost Hoax, The Search for Lost Revolutionary War Treasure, just published by the History Press. Now, before we get started, I have to apologize to all of you listeners in advance, because quite frankly, I got so excited by the sheer lunacy of this story that whatever usual professional decorum I try to maintain more or less got lost in the first five minutes. So sorry about that. But see if this case doesn't charm you in the same way. Dirty sheets and fake voice boxes and all. Did I say Egon Spengler? I should have said Scooby-Doo. Peter, thank you so much for joining us on Crime Capsule. We are delighted to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Now, your book is a real enigma. And there's something I just have to get out of the way right up front. And I'm going to see if I can do this. I may not get it 100%, but I'm going to try. Your book is a book about a story based on a con, which is based on a legend, based on an erroneous belief in buried treasure. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, it's actually perfect. Yeah, you should have written the back of the book for me. That was, that was perfect. That was good. <laughs> it, 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 thank you. It took me a minute. I was really trying to get all the way down to the tiniest of the Russian dolls here, you know, as I was reading, because the, the more that I kept reading, I kept finding more and more dolls. And I was like, what is happening? And, and every yeah. chapter, you brought a new layer, a new wrinkle to this insane story. What was it like even making sense out of that yourself? You know, it was, it was funny when I was talking to my publisher about it. I said, no, I have this story of a ghost. And he was like, all right, that sounds good. We could do a ghost story. I'm like, yeah, no, but it doesn't actually have a ghost. And, you know, and he was like, <laughs> what do you mean? I was like, well, it's a story about a ghost and I want to call it something ghost, but it doesn't have a ghost. And he's like, well, what does it have? I'm like, well, it has a guy basically in a white sheet. He's like, you mean like a ghost? I'm like, yeah. But yeah, but it doesn't have a ghost. So you know, it, it really to wrap my head around it. My my big thing was, how could someone, anyone, um, believe in this con? I mean, I, I just couldn't really wrap my head around it. Like, I mean, I, this guy literally. I want him again. This is 1788. But even then, I'm like, well, 1788 people are still people. And I mean, this guy literally dressed as a ghost in the most plainest terms you would see on Scooby-Doo. You know, he put this little white sheet on and he had some mechanism that ultimately altered his voice. And he scared, you know, scared these people into believing that he was real. And I just, I couldn't wrap my head around it, which is what started this whole story for me. You know, this research was like, well, all right, let me, let me build the history around it. Let me discover or rediscover the context of this fable, um, knowing that, that it wasn't really a fable. It actually was a real story. I just, I wanted to build the context around it. I needed to know how on earth could this happen where someone could be conned into believing in such a ridiculous, really, and a truly unbelievable way that this was a ghost. I mean, today's special effects, we could probably make someone be really afraid. But back then, it just, again... I, you know, it was a discovery. It was I was, I was on a discovery quest. So, 
I mean, I need to tell you right now that I did, in fact, write the name Scooby-Doo in the margins of my copy when we got <laughs> to that moment. Uh, and we will get to that moment, you know. Yeah, I mean, it is, it, is, it is coming. We are not going to hold out on our listeners here. But we've got a little work to do before, before we get there. And I did want to ask you, uh, you, are, uh, you live in this region. You live about five miles away from Morristown where, um, where this all took place. But how, how did you, you say discovery, how did you discover this story to begin with? So living in New Jersey, I live in northern New Jersey, and like you said, right outside of Morristown, there's quite a few fables of, you know, that are kind of known and told to children growing up about New Jersey folklore, especially, um, you know, I have a background in, in education and having taught New Jersey history for years, uh, it, it's always like lumped in. There's just some stories about uh, New Jersey history. And one of them is the, obviously the New Jersey devil. Uh, that one is usually very popular. And one of the other ones that's really popular is this particular one, the story of the Morristown ghost where this one particular person um, arrived from New England and managed to con a a group of most prominent wealthy members of society into believing that he was a ghost. And, you know, over the years, this story has actually appeared in numerous books about New Jersey history and on New Jersey history. And that's kind of how I came across it. as just just knowing it always kind of grown up, I guess. But then as I'm doing research for other books about New Jersey history, I kept on coming across this story of, you know, it's always lumped in as, as a tale. And some sometimes it actually even goes into the realm of, well, there really was a ghost and there really was a treasure. And, you know, it's kind of <laughs> built, yeah, it's kind of like become its own thing in the past 200, 300 years. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny when um, this title first crossed my desk, I, I initially thought, uh, rather hopefully that we would be dealing with an actual ghost that was hoaxing, like playing pranks on and <laughs> hoaxing the living, right? That like you had yeah, this yeah. mischievous, you know, like uh, poltergeist who just really enjoyed pulling the wool over our eyes, like you're in my eyes, right? And I was really just kind of holding out. Um, now, what's funny, Peter, is that I was... I was both disappointed that there was not, in fact, an actual ghost that was hosting the living, but I was more delighted as a result of what actually happened, right? The truth is indeed better. So, I mean, it, is, it was just a total, a total joy. Now, in order to tell this story, you did a lot of work on the context of it and the context of the post-revolutionary war landscape in northern New Jersey and in New Jersey generally is utterly critical to understanding how this came to be. You can't do one without the other. Okay. So as we dive into the ghost hoax, would you first take us to northern New Jersey in the years right, well, let's say take us right to the middle of the Revolutionary War, because that's really kind of where this begins, isn't it? I mean, it's... Yeah, it's, absolutely. The, the incident was 1788, but you write that the sort of the germ of it was actually brewing during the middle of the war with the tensions between the, the patriots, the American patriots, and the British loyalists. So what what was going on in this area at that time? The interest in New Jersey, generally speaking, 1700s, actually started for my master thesis when I got my master's in history, you know, it was like a decade ago. When I started doing research with regards to New Jersey leading up to Revolutionary War, and I realized that New Jersey was very much divided as a state based on again, like based on religious lines. So it was who was the Anglican, um, you know, who were the members of the Anglican Church, who were the members of the Protestant Church, and this, these divisions often led very much so to conflicts between neighbors. You know, I'm talking early 1700s, where people would always, you know, steal each other's cattle or just do little hoaxes here and there because of the the religious division between them. And what ultimately happens is when the American Revolution comes to be, New Jersey's very much stuck in the middle, uh, specifically this area. George Washington um, stayed in Morristown 
twice. He chose to, you know, bring his armies to Morristown for winters uh, two times. There, uh, you know, everywhere I look, growing up in this area, and you know, just my neighborhood, everywhere you look, you see George Washington was here. George Washington was here. There's another plaque. I mean, <laughs> so, and, and you know, he wasn't here in the best capacity because that kind of plays a part in the story. Because George Washington was ultimately chased through New Jersey. Um, you know, he was kind of losing as the British and the Hessians were chasing him out. And then well, you have this big comeback, you know, his return of the Jedi moment when he comes back in the um, Battle of Trenton. But what starts to happen is as the revolution starts, these families that have kind of been feuding for years, even specifically in Morris County, kind of take on the roles and new labels that are associated with the war. So you have those that always belong to the Anglican church, they become the so-called loyalists. And then you have uh, the people that were kind of always, I would say a little bit jealous maybe of their so-called wealth, because the loyalists were always a little bit wealthier. Um, They kind of took on this role of the patriots. So it's simply this animosity that's been there for generations translated itself to the war. But now there is an outlet. Now you have a scene and almost an arena where you could kind of really utilize these, these, this hatred, per se. It's funny because we have this preconception, I think, in sort of the teaching of popular history that, you know, m- most folks generally were on the side of the patriots, of the rebels. You know, that's kind of the classic American tale that we like to tell because we love a scrappy underdog, don't we? But your your claim is actually very stark. I mean, you draw on scholars who have established that it was nearly half and half, the evenly split down the middle between who are we supporting here. And that is a startling number if you think about it for that time. I mean, you didn't know if you could trust your neighbor. It's remarkable. Absolutely. Yeah. And what's once up happening, which really kind of plays a role here and why there's even a story of the Morristown ghost, is the fact that every time the Patriot, like when Washington is being chased through New Jersey, where he stops in, you know, around Morristown uh, by the British, um, you see the loyalists kind of come out during this time. And what they do is they start pillaging uh, the farms of the Patriots. They start stealing their stuff. They start setting their barns on fire and their fields on fire. And it's, I mean, people are actually generally just, if you start looking through New Jersey files, there's people that are killed during this time. Loyalists, no one can pinpoint specifically like this person killed this guy, but there is deaths that are occurring during the time as Washington's armies are going through New Jersey. And the deaths are not by the soldiers. We're talking the civilians are fighting against other civilians. Huh, the British are here, so the loyalists come out, and it's almost like, all right, well, now I'm going to the thing you did to, you know, you stole my cow five years ago. Well, now I'm going to burn your barn kind of thing. So you have that animosity going on. But then when Washington returns, um, you ultimately see the flip side of this. And now the, the patriots are like, well, how could you do this, you loyalists? So now they go in and they pillage their land. And they steal their stuff. And they, you know, they set their people on fire. There's tar and feathering going on left and right. There's, it's really, I called it very much a, a civil war that is happening within the state of New Jersey. And because of the fact that you have these patriots and loyalists going back and forth, you have a British unit that is created specifically from the loyalists that kind of goes out, you know, works as a rogue unit. And it goes in and hunts down patriots. Uh, you know, for the reason of trying to solicit some form of a, you know, a, a punishment, I guess, uh, you know, on the Patriots for betraying the crown. And this happens quite often, back and forth. And this is what brings up this idea of, well, you know, there's supposedly a treasure. This is this what starts to happen, and the, the Patriots start talking about this idea that once they start pillaging the homes of these loyalists they realize that there's not as much money and not as much gold and and treasure in a sense of perhaps uh, jewelry or so on and so forth as they thought would be there. So a legend is born within or amongst rather the Patriots stating that, you know what, these loyalists had to have somehow got together in this county, these rich people that we know always had so much wealth and carriages and all this stuff. They had to have hidden their money. It's impossible that, you know, that there's so little to pillage. So this kind of is this, this, this birth of this, well, where would they bury it? And amongst the locals, the idea was, well, the one secluded spot 
that is near here, because you know there's no cars, obviously it's 1700s, that these these locals, these loyalists can get to is in Schooley Mountain, which is nearby on the outskirts of Morristown. And it's it's almost this thought of, well, we're not getting enough from these loyalists, so they buried their treasure. It, they had to have t- come together and somehow buried it. Um, and that was kind of my discovery, in a sense, looking through this, was, well, okay, so that's the belief why the treasure existed. So let me ask you this. We'll come to Schooley Mountain in just a minute, but I wanted to ask you this this behavior during wartime, your account of it is is actually quite chilling, Peter. I mean, you have arson, you have uh, robbing, you have pillaging, you have uh, unaccounted for murders. Um, it's not really the kind of behavior that we think of when when we imagine our sort of brave American patriots or the sort of the free folk, the the citizenry who are you know supporting them as they you know drive out the evil uh, you know colonials, right? Well. Of course, much of history, once you get into the details, does not conform to our expectations. But you do write this kind of interesting uh, side note, which is that Washington himself did condemn this kind of behavior from the Patriot side, but that there wasn't a whole lot that he could necessarily do about it firsthand. He was actually waging a campaign in other parts of the state and trying to drive Cornwallis out. So on the one hand, you had this kind of official rhetoric of, you know, we're not going to behave the way that those mercenaries, you know, those terrible foreign mercenaries are behaving, right? And yet it was still happening absolutely on the ground, wasn't it? Absolutely. And interesting too that you brought that up because his official decree was, you know, we're all American. We need to act a specific way. However, himself, his armies were actually responsible a lot for for stealing stuff from people. Grain was was huge. Uh, when, you know, when today we're proud of the fact that Washington stayed in this town, he stayed in this house. That means that Washington's armies pillaged that farm. I mean, that's that's ultimately <laughs> right. what happened. Um, Raided was, the barn and made off of everything they could. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. And, you know, and they gave them these slips of like IOUs, basically. Like, well, you know, if we win the war, you'll get this back from the government. But this is at a time where we're rebels. I mean, there is absolutely no guarantee that this war will be won. So Washington, as much as there was a lot of patriots, was was really turning a lot of people against him um, himself. You know, this idea of like, well, his, we need to feed the army. It is what it is. And he often complained that New Jersey was always a little skimpy when it came to sharing its stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, you know, there's there's his own writings when he's just these New Jerseyans. Why, like, why are they upset that I'm taking their grain? I mean, I have to win this war. Um, you know, so does, does that reputation hold hold true today? Are y'all a bunch of spendthrifts up there? Is that is there <laughs> right. was that any truth to the notion? <laughs> that is so funny. But um, yeah, well, let's hope not, right? But um, it is you know it is interesting that there's always the official rhetoric, there's always the official decree, and then there is the pragmatic approach that you know different leaders have to trying to win a war in this case. Of course. Now, you, you have this kind of interesting moment in in this part of the narrative, which sets the stage for the ghost hoax. Uh, Washington does, in fact, lead his army to substantial victories in, in New Jersey, and he is instrumental in, in driving Cornwallis's army um, uh, a good distance uh, away. And that creates a kind of new landscape between this evenly divided split. You have a lot of the Brit- the loyalists, excuse me, the loyalists fleeing to New York, right? You have uh, loyalists fleeing state lines because they are seeking their safety. You have an exodus and you, you begin to see the formation of New Jersey as a sort of distinctly American held territory. Okay. That that sets the stage for increased persecution, as you write, of those few remaining loyalists that were that were still there. The, the, there's an imbalance now that used to be sort of evenly divided, and now it's an imbalance. What was the strategy that he used in order to win that those engagements? How how was he able to take New Jersey uh, for the Patriots in that moment? Uh, interesting enough, I, it's. It may, and I don't want to degrade Washington by any means, but up to this point, up to really Trenton, 
Um, and then shortly thereafter, Princeton. And Washington was not doing so well in the battlefield. There's no denying that. He was kind of losing. And I think what actually helped him secure these victories is the fact that General Howe and Cornwallis basically stopped taking him seriously. Um, you know, leaving they left New Jersey in the hands of, of a mercenary army, the Hessians, right? The German Hessians. And themselves, they retreated back to New York thinking that, you know, it's winter, you know, a gentleman doesn't fight in winter, it's too cold. So we're going to hang out and give our British, proper British Redcoats uh, soldiers a little R&R in New York City. And the Hessians are going to hold on to New Jersey because Washington is all but beaten. So what the way he really secured these victories and turned the tide of the war in New Jersey was because he kind of did the ungentleman thing. He chose to, one, surprise his enemy. Two, he chose to do so um, on Christmas, knowing that the Hessians were German and Catholic. So it was kind of like not a gentleman thing to do. And also being winter, it was almost like an unwritten rule. Well, armies don't fight in winter. We take a break. So he basically, in a very scrappy way, um, utilized all his advantages that he could have had at, at that particular given time. I mean, had he waited until spring, he would not have had those victories because potentially, uh, highly likely, the British might have come back to New Jersey. So here he is being essentially by the British uh, viewed as done, over with, and the British kind of, you know, they they let their guard down. They leave New Jersey thinking that he's not going to cross that Delaware River, and that's exactly what he does. And he, what he does afterwards is he goes, he goes to Trenton, secures a victory, um, which kind of turns the tide around. Like, yes, this this guy can win. We can win. He then follows that very quickly with Princeton. Again, newspapers, local newspapers are saying this is happening. We could do this. And it actually allows for a lot of his army to not quit. Because up to that point, he was having a mass exodus every single year. And after those two victories, people are like, all right, maybe I'll stick around. And after that, he goes, all right, well, let's settle down, you know, in Morristown and uh, let's regroup kind of thing. Now, what's funny is that you're in this at this point in the story, Washington actually recedes into the background. So the fog of war is is covering this area in, in multiple different ways. Washington's using deception in order to sort of achieve his... Um, you know, his victories on the battlefield, uh, deception and surprise. And the fog of war is descending upon the community in Morristown and this evolving dynamic between uh, the rebel, the patriots, and the loyalists. Okay. Now, you write that part of the reason for uh, information of all kinds, which is going to take us straight to this hoax, um, one of the reasons that information gets corrupted in transit during this time is because literacy rates are quite low. They're lower than we think they were. And that there were fairly strong beliefs in sort of superstition and the prevalence of witchcraft and so forth that were also circulating even as news of the war is spreading. So mysterious occurrences are chalked up to supernatural forces more readily then than they might be now. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Uh, you know, back then, if you called the doctor in because, you know, your stomach hurt or you had some form of ailment, um, when you call the doctor in, ultimately, you were calling in a witch doctor. You know, it was, you know, someone would come in and say, all right, you got to lay on your side and then you're going to breathe in a couple times and drink this tea and you should be better. Um, there was not really a lot of um, knowledge, as you mentioned. And schooling, schooling was not necessarily key or important. However, this was also a time when this is changing. Um, it is definitely changing. You have Princeton, which is located in New Jersey, you have, you know, which is ultimately designed as a higher level institution for, for priests. I mean, it's for clergy, but everyone aspired to ultimately become educated, but it was also a class issue. And as I mentioned before, a lot of the loyalists were more educated than some of the patriots that you had in these areas. And it was becoming somewhat of an embarrassment to believe in, in a lot of the superstitions. However, it was still very prevalent, extremely prevalent. You had stories that were appearing in newspapers, um, you know, that there was a, a tree, there's a witch tree where, um, you know, a lot of people have died underneath that tree and the tree whispers odd things and you can't walk by it because it's bad luck. And 
um, you had stories that actually were the story. This one is interesting too. Was written by none other but Ben Franklin. Um, you know the story that there was a witch trial in New Jersey, and historians, New Jersey historians to this day, can't confirm nor deny whether Franklin was basically making fun of New Jersey. For you know, in 1780s, you still believe in in the superstitions. Uh, or whether it actually happened, but he did report on it nonetheless. You know, he wrote about this idea of, well, you know, there's witches and someone accuses somebody else and they're trying to see if they're going to drown or not. And right. These, <laughs> right? these are things that you would normally read in 1600s New England, um, but yet this is 1780s and you're reading about this potentially supposedly happening in New Jersey. Um, and even if it did not happen, again, we don't know, um, at least the, the sheer fact that here is someone like Benjamin Franklin writing about this um, suggests that there's still belief that New Jerseyans still believe in the superstitions. You know, the other note I made in the margins of my copy uh, alongside Scooby-Doo was, was at the moment when you described the uh, Mount Holly witch trials, the alleged Mount Holly witch trials. And I just, I was looking at it and I was thinking, this is Monty Python all over again. You know, does she float? Because <laughs> she's not a witch burner anyway, you know, that sort yeah. of thing. And it just, it would be funny if it were not, of course, so terrifying and so many yeah. lives, you know, were needlessly lost uh, as a result of these beliefs. Now, amid this uh, insanity, <laughs> if, if I can be yeah, civil. Say the least, yeah, yeah. Enter our villain, right? Enter stage left, um, this amazing person who just beggars belief, Ransfield, Ransford Rogers, who basically comes down to this area and says, I am going to take advantage of everything that I see in front of me. I am going to pull the wool over everyone's eyes just as far as I possibly can. And and he nearly gets away with it, doesn't he? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the crazy thing is, you know, he kind of looks at the, the I want to say gullible aspect of, of this area, but he looks at the superstitious aspect. He looks at the fact that there's a lot of simple people here. That education is, I mean, he's a school teacher. I mean, ultimately, that's what he is. Um, so he almost has firsthand experience of that. He looks at the lack of proper education. He looks at the... Um, you know, if, what's what I'm looking for? Um, if there's also a not hate, but I guess hate um, and greed towards the loyalists that are now gone. You know, they they left, but there's he sees that there's still that that greed to get back at them. That there's they have to have money and animosity towards them. Like we, you know, we need to get back at them, and we're gonna take that money that they hid so they could never come back and get it again. Uh, and he's actually recruited, interesting enough. I mean, he finds out about this. He's, you know, he's chilling up in uh, New England and, and there's some locals from New Jersey, Morristown that are traveling and they, they kind of come across uh, him and they tell him that, you know, there's, a, there's, this, there's this treasure that's hidden by these loyalists, but, you know, there's a lot of talk that there is ghosts that are, that are essentially guarding this treasure, that these loyalists actually buried buried a couple of dead bodies that were killed by these patriots along with this treasure and these these ghosts and these bodies and spirits are going to protect this treasure um and ransford's like oh really you know where, where is this treasure like well <laughs> He's like, you know yeah, I, can, I can get on board with that sure yeah i can, I can work i can work i can work this yeah um <laughs> So, you know, he's just like, oh, well, you know, so they tell him, well, it's in this schooly mountain. We don't really know where in a schooly mountain, but it's there. We know it for a fact. And he's like, well, you know, I have some experience communicating with, uh, you know, with right. spirits. Um, and, you know, the, the fact is that he is someone that is educated at a, at a time where a lot of people are not. So these two travelers actually do look up to him to a certain extent. I mean, this is an educated dude and he sounds smart and he's telling them, I, I do know how to communicate with spirits and... Um, he also, we learn later on, has kind of a knack for for chemistry. I mean, this guy was able to take gunpowder and make explosions and and create smoke and thinks that a, an average farmer in northern New Jersey would not know how to do. Like to him, an explosion out of the ground and smoke would be like, oh, what's happening? Meanwhile, you know, he planted something that simply took a while to explode. I, I definitely want to ask you about his stagecraft because it really is... Uh remarkable but but take us to the first con because there were several cons but the first one was arguably the most effective what what did ransford cook up here so ransford comes down 
uh, moves to Morristown initially, as picks up a job in a one-room schoolhouse um, in the country. He's a teacher, and he kind of scopes out to see who... And keep in mind, people that are sending these kids to the schoolhouse are the wealthier members of this society. So he kind of scopes that out, and he's like, all right, who are the... Who are the wealthy people here? And he starts to slowly discuss with people this idea of like, oh, I heard there's this, you know, there's this treasure that's hidden. And, and people are like, well, yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah, of course there is. And he starts to spread this idea that potentially he could somehow uh, communicate with these spirits. And But the issue is that he does this very secretly. And he has these people meet at his cottage, which is, again, in the middle of the woods, uh, far away, you know, from the center of town. And he doesn't really tell any of them the first time who's who, who's meeting there. So they all kind of come secretly. And once he gets them all there, it's all of a sudden they see each other. And it's like, well, now you're in this because I could say that you were gullible enough to show up and you were gullible enough to show up. So he kind of gets them. Uh, it's a small group of people. And he ultimately just kind of first time just discusses with them, well, this is secretive. And obviously we don't want anyone else to get this treasure, but I have gone to Schooly Mountain actually. And I have spoken to this spirit, you know, and, and I brought you here guys, because I feel like you are also worthy to, you know, to, to go on this journey with me. So when he gets them together, he already tells them that this is a done deal. He's like, I found this treasure you've been seeking for years. And, and you know, I am the one that's going to be the chosen person to communicate because the spirit has chosen to communicate with me. And at first, he doesn't really ask for any money. At first, it's just he wants them to believe it. You know, that's what it comes down to. It's interesting when you when you have someone who says, only I have access to the secret forbidden knowledge, right? I mean, d surely there must have been a little skepticism in that room at first, but they seem to have gotten over their skepticism very quickly, didn't they? Well, yeah. So he, um, we now find out that Ransford actually winds up bringing a friend. He definitely has a friend that's involved in this situation. And as these guys are in a room and he's talking to them, they start hearing things outside. You know, it's at a cottage. Again, 1780s, and they hear tapping, and they start hearing noises, and and then they start hearing a voice. And, you know, it's almost like, wait, what's happening here? And we come to find out that apparently, and this is according to newspapers from 1700s, you know, they call they called it an apparatus, a voice apparatus that was created. That he <laughs> created some magic box that if right. you spoke through it, you know, it, it, it kind of like Kevin McAllister from uh, Home Alone here, you know, it changes the voice and. And, and these, so these people are in there, and again, not suspect. They're already freaked out. It's dark. There's candles going on. And this guy's talking about spirits, but all of a sudden, they start hearing noises. They start hearing spirits, and and they're like, "What is happening?" And, and again, not knowing that there's a, a a dude running around the outside of the house and continuously like making noises from different corners. So they think there's more than one thing, and and he scares them enough to to say to them you know, you guys need to come back and we're going to have to do this the proper way to communicate with this. And they're like, oh, okay, I, I guess we'll come back. Yeah, of course. Um, so at first, it's just a ploy to get them to believe that there is a spirit. And these people, it's interesting because you, for me as as a historian, I was like, why would they believe this? And, and I sort of come back to this idea, well, because at this time, people still believed very strongly that there is some supernatural powers. I mean, uh, it was very much tied to education level and, and these people as wealthy as they were, um, a lot of them because they got land passed on to them, not because they, you know, today wealth and education are often go hand in hand, but that wasn't really the case back then. He, he got them, I mean, ultimately. hilarious is in the first con we've got we've got a couple of cons to work through but in the first con he he brings him in he says okay now you guys are all complicit um he he hooks him 
soon, this takes place over a series of sort of weeks and months, he begins to take them out into the field, into Schooley Mountain. Uh, there's the sort of rituals that they conduct out there. Yep. Walking right? circles, um, uh, oldest to youngest, tallest to shortest. Like, yeah, he's got, he figures out as he goes along with his thing. It's it, it's it's amazing, and then I think my favorite moment is, and he does this again the second in the second con, uh, he he basically says, uh, "This is a pay to play scheme, right?" So it's like if if you want to get this treasure, you got to pay the spirits first, and he starts bilking everybody out of. Gold and silver. You write, of course, with the currency standards at the time. You know, it's only the only thing that's worth anything was gold and silver. Uh, you know, not not the sort of local money. But I mean, it, surely again, you're, <laughs> you're you're thinking as you're reading this book. It's like, did no one's eyebrows start to raise a little bit when you have to pay the spirit in worldly money? Not like if I'm going to make a terrible joke here, but like in Ethereum, right? You know what I mean? <laughs> So I mean, like, like, what is going on? No, it's it's surreal because he, you know, his idea was, all right, we're going to meet, and first of all, he continues the con. So while they're meeting in in the field, this is where this whole chemistry comes into play. And the other, you know, he sets up these. Uh, he basically around the perimeter, he would dig up these holes and he would put gunpowder in them, and then he would have his accomplice running around and like lighting these things on fire. So as he's talking to them, things are like kind of blown up some places, and there's noises, and they're like, "What is happening?" Um, he's like, "Well, the, the ghosts are angry because you're not listening to me. You know, the spirit is angry." Um, <laughs> and, and he kind of continues. Yeah, of he are. continues this idea of, well, <laughs> you need to pay to showcase that you really truly are in it. You need to be vested in this and and through, you know, giving something before the ghost could surrender this gift to you, you have to showcase that you're willing to give yourself as well. Um, you know, mm-hmm. and my suspicion mm-hmm. is that at this point, some of these guys, they had to have, again, I just, I want to believe that some of these men, these are wealthy individuals, um, must have thought that like, Oh, I'm screwed. You know, like I, I better pay this guy because I'm gonna be so embarrassed in, in light of this whole town. Everyone like is gonna make fun of me for the fact that I, I got duped. So it's almost like I'm in too deep aspect, right? I mean, these guys I mean, think of it this way, right? Once the con ends, these guys don't talk about it. Quite frankly, it's it's not even like they're not even trying to arrest him. Like they're just like, oh, I wasn't part of this. I, I I don't want nothing to do with it. I mean, these let's bury this in history and never talk about it again. Um, it's like they had this epiphany afterwards. Like, oh man, maybe like we went a little too far. But then again, if I'm if I'm in the middle of a field, the middle of a woods, um, you know, and there's things that are completely freaking me out, and there's some guy that's standing there in a weird voice apparatus saying like, "I am the spirit of," and you're like, "What is happening?" Um, you know, perhaps maybe you're you're afraid enough where you're like, "Yeah, take a dollar. All right, take five dollars. I just let me go home. I mean, <laughs> I'm done with this. Right. Just yeah. get me out of here. Just get me out of here." So, so how much money does does Ransford make in this first stint? There was, uh, you know, looking at it, looking through different sources in Morristown history, Morris County history, it doesn't specific, specify, there's a few places that give a different number, and I actually don't remember it off the top of my head. Um, did I put it in a book? Do you know? I don't think I did. I think, well, there were, because he did this several times, you know, um, it was a little tricky to keep track of how much he was making in which instance, because it, the numbers were a little fluid. But, I mean, it sounds to me like he made enough to oh, he was satisfied. live on for a while. Yeah. Yes. And then, and then, you know, the, sort of he'd spent his way through that and it was time for con number two. Uh, you know, like you got to scratch the old itch, right? And so what I was, what I was interested in is that you write there was a key difference between con number one and con number two. Of course, they never found the treasure, right? And so the, of course, the yeah. And the, were, the, actually, right, yeah, the right. conclusion of it is awesome because he plans this, the kid, you know, the people are eventually getting a little upset. They're like, all right, where's the money? All right, like, we've paid you enough. Where's the money? And he's like, this is happening. And that was like his grand finale. This is when he really pulls out all the stops. There's potentially one or two people that are helping him. There's someone that, you know, at one point, 
uh, someone actually is dressed in this sheet, literally comes out from the trees, but they have to stay in a circle. <laughs> they can't move out of the circle so they could just enough see this ghost in a sheet and there's smoke around him. And Ransford walks up to this ghost. And this ghost, which is obviously his accomplice, you know, Ransford's accomplice, is speaking through this apparatus really loud and there's echoes. And he says, you guys were not worthy. Some of you have told my secrets to others. And, you know, for this, I you have angered me. Uh, you know, and this again, things are blowing up again, and it's just you know, like it's you know, these people are like, do not move out of the circle. And the ghost is saying, you can't move out of the circle; you'll be damned forever. So everyone's like shaking, and and they see Ransford over there by the tree talking to this ghost, and and Ransford comes back and says, ah, oh, guys, we messed up. Some of you must not have been faithful, and and must have mentioned some, must have mentioned something, and therefore. Unfortunately, at this point, you know, the, the spirits are not going to give us the treasure, but they're going to spare your life, you know, your life for now, your lives. And, and oh, that seems to be enough. Generous. Yeah, yeah, that right, seems to be enough right. for these guys. And these guys are like, oh, OK, all right. Can we like leave the circle? And he kind of just like, all right, you are done for now. <laughs> and then, it, you know, it's his grand finale. I mean, if this was a play, this was the encore and it's over. Basically, at that point, it ends. And he's like kind of like happy about it. He's like, all right, well, I got enough money. I could live off of this. This is cool. And. That was still got me too, is that these people went home and for months, no one talked about it because they knew that they would be ridiculed. So they're like, oh man, I guess we got conned. You know, <laughs> like that didn't work out. Well, I mean, one thing is true is that um, that they are being ridiculed by you and by me. Uh, so well, <laughs> they, they got their wish on that, on that front, yeah, you yeah. know, uh, not not to be uncouth, but, um, you know, I'm afraid they did make their bed and, and, and lay in it. So uh, the second con, the second con is Different interesting. People. Different people. And and Ransford, he's not stupid, right? I mean, like he might be a conniving sneak thief, but he's not stupid. He actually changes the terms of the engagement to where he too is a participant, right? Like he sort of makes himself to be, you know, paying in just like everybody else. He's no longer the sort of arch priest of the ritual in that sense. He's sort of like, no, I'm just one of you guys. And yet he'd cook the whole thing up himself. So, I mean, what difference did that make in the execution of con number two? Yeah, I think it actually helped him get away with it in a sense. You know, he did not, it's almost like you don't come back to the scene of the crime, right? So he actually started the entire second con by targeting a different group of people. And as opposed to with the first group of people, he looked at the, the angry former patriots that had money, but were just greedy and wanted more of the money. And now he winds up going after a group of really religious church-going people that, you know, and he kind of plays it off like, it's not just about the treasure. The treasure is going to be your reward for giving peace to these spirits so they could go to heaven. And because you guys are good Christians, you're going to, you know, we're together, all of us. We're going to release these poor spirits that were buried with this treasure and they will go to heaven while we will get the treasure for the fact that we were such good Christians. So different group of people right off the start, right? <laughs> it's totally he's how like, it works, by the way. That's just totally yeah, right? how it works. <laughs> totally how it works. <laughs> yeah, but, like, but that's what he's going for. You know, it's like, we're going to be good people in this. And Again, he starts getting these, you know, church-going people. He gets these very religious guys on board. He brings them in, and it's very initially. Again, he's he kind of starts off with, "I have this ability to speak to these to these spirits, but we need to help them. It is our mission." But he, as you mentioned, very quickly, what he does is he selects. He kind of like watches um, while he has these group meetings, very similar meetings. And he kind of watches who's like the leader in the group. And he starts picking people that he thinks would everybody else would follow. And then he starts visiting them separately while he has a sheet on, which is another thing, right? He like taps taps on their window at night. And then, you know, with this voice yeah. apparatus, he's like, I am the spirit of the schooly mountain, come out. And then, you know, they start to come out and they're like, but stay by your window. You know, you can't go any further. And he like stays further out you know, by, by the fence. And he tries talking to them and he's like, you know, you will now be the chosen one who I will speak to, you know, and you will Ooh. go at the, exactly. And you will go at the meeting and you're going to tell Ransford and everybody else that you will now be the chosen one. 
So now, you know, so next day Ransford meets with his people at night in the middle of the field, you know, some cabin in the darkness. And a new guy comes out. He's like, well, actually, you know, the spirit saw me. So I will now be the leader. And Ransford's like, oh, of course, whatever the spirit wants. Um, <laughs> and, and, and he kind of he kind of went along with this in a sense, like when he started, it's funny because when he started noticing that some people did not believe him, right, that they were getting skeptical, he would visit them right away, too. In the same premise, you tap on their window and he was like, oh, I'm the spirit and I also chose to speak to you. So now the guy that was potentially on the fence is like, oh, no, guys, seriously, spirit came over last night. Like, this was real. This happened. Um, you know, and he kind of, like you said, makes himself be part of the con. And again, this is the crazy part. Like, I really found it so difficult to how does he introduce this idea of like, we're good Christians, but we need to pay the spirit anyway. Um, you know, we should be paying the spirit to show right, this we're gonna time leave that this money and under this tree and exactly you know, like I'm going to separate you from your hard earned wages. You know, like it, it just, you know, the, the level of ridiculousness was at 60. We're now at 75 and we're climbing towards 90. I mean, it's just it was not. Insane. Yeah. And these people didn't have so, money. I mean, some of them, they weren't as wealthy as the first group. So they literally like sold stuff to get it. You know, they didn't have the money to give. And, you know, so Ransford's like, well, I'll lend you some money if you want. You just have to pay me back later. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, it's still going to him anyway, right? right. <laughs> so he's like, well, if you can't give 10, if you can't give 10 ounces, just give seven. The ghost, I'll talk to the ghost. You know, he's going to be okay right. with it. Uh, and I mean, that's literally what he says to them, some of them. And they're like, all right, let's give you everything I have. And, you know, this is where you have the wives of these men are starting to get wise. They're like, like, like where, do you, where do you keep on going at night? Like, are you cheating on me? Where's all the money going? You know, meanwhile... Yeah, it's 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 worse than that. Even I mean, these the gullible aspect of this is nuts. So con number two ends in a similar-ish fashion to con number one, and that Ransford sort of sees people getting suspicious, and he begins to call it off, and people start asking sort of too many questions, and he's he realizes that things are getting a little delicate here. Um, but it's con number three where things actually fall. Apart. I mean, that is his downfall. Um, you write that th there was actually one specific moment which jeopardized the entire operation, which is that one of his uh, marks, one of his gullible farmer types, accidentally left. I'm just going to come right out and say it a pouch of the secret magic powder, which they had been given, right, uh, as, as sort of emblem of their participation and part of the incantatory ritual, etc. Okay, this guy... The crushed bones, this magic powder. The magic powder, yes, yes, the, sa yes. the sachet of the magic powder. This guy just manages to do the unthinkable, which is leave it out in the open, and his wife finds it. And that is, in fact, the straw that broke the camel's back, wasn't it? Yep, 100%. Which, the irony of this is is surreal to me, because I even mentioned in the story the idea of how women were viewed as second-class citizens in 1700s, and how women were not educated past a certain level of, well, you know what, if you're good enough to to be able to measure uh, for baking purposes, you're done. Uh, you know, and these men considered themselves to be like the the you know the the pinnacles of that society the the pantheons uh you know of uh, of Morris County and, and and yet you know it's the the woman is the one that they say behind every great man is a greater woman um it totally works here you know he comes home and his first of all his wife finds it and she's like what is this you know like this is shady and she does what every good Christian woman at that time would do I mean she goes right to the local you know to the local priest uh, in a church that actually still stands there in Morristown. Um, and she's like, what is this? What is this witchcraft? And he's like, oh, your husband's in something deep. He's, this is the way too deep. This is bad. Um, <laughs> you know, you need, you need to turn him away yeah. from this or your whole family's going to, you know, again, superstition, but from the Christian aspect, right? Like the God is not going to be okay with this. Something is fishy. And then she basically like waits for her husband to come home and she's just like, dude, like, what is this? And, and, and he just cracks and he's like, ah, you know, there's a ghost and, and this is what's happening. And she's like, ah, right, well, you know, and she's like, well, I need to see this ghost. Um, and lucky for them, you know, Ransford Roger, you know, the, Ransford Rogers suspecting things that, you know, something's not right. This guy's not being as into it as he's supposed to. And, and he, you know, he, this is another mistake of Ransford Rogers. He gets drunk. Um, 
you know, he winds up, he winds up getting drunk in a local tavern and he's like, oh man, I still got to go see that guy, you know, as the spirit, I have to be the spirit tonight. So he goes over to this man's house as a spirit, mind you. And, you know, same premise, stay by the window or stay over there by the house. I'm going to be here. You can't be there. And he, you know, he gives this whole spiel, but this time the wife is listening. The wife is, is watching, listening. She's, she's figuring this out. And as soon as Ransford leaves, you know, it's, it's, she waits till it gets a little lighter out. She goes outside and I mean, it's obviously it was raining the night before. So here you have, you know, this guy's footsteps. I mean, you, I mean, you literally see his like footprint everywhere. Uh, and, and she's like, well, this is where the ghost was. Right. And this is where he walked. And, and she basically like, I could imagine looks at her husband, like you dumb butt, you know, like you, like, here you go. <laughs> you yeah. Schmuck. Like you idiot. Like here you, here's your ghost. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and yeah. it's almost like no. This is like the moment. Like this is the ripped from the headlines of Scooby Doo moment where you have this drunk con man wearing the sheet, standing outside, yelling gibberish into the night air, and and the lady of the house she can see his freaking boots, right? I mean, it's like the sheet doesn't even go all the way down to the ground, and you're just like. What on earth is happening? Oh, to be a fly on the wall of that barn. I mean, oh, to be. Def- a, I mean, uh. Uh, I mean, sloppy, sloppy from Ransford. You know, because he had them. I mean, he had them all. By this time, these people are giving him money, and and it was just you know, he, the, I when I even write in the book, he just got greedy. You know, he really, if he packed it up after the second, like if he packed up after the second con, he would have been good. You know, he if he just left, but he he got greedy, and and he, essentially they. They find him. They they figure him out. <laughs> yeah, they um, track him. They track him down. They're sort of like, literally, hey, there's some footsteps here. Where where could they go? <laughs> they follow. Yeah, they follow the footsteps. They figure out where the, the horses are. They follow that track. Like they literally follow it to his house. It doesn't get any more. Like here you go. Um, and you know, and the guy is the guy's arrested. I mean, he he is thrown in jail, uh, which is it's an interesting part of the story. You know, he's thrown in jail. Uh, which is on the Morristown Green. Today, it's like a nice park area, and but the courthouse is no longer actually there. But there's a plaque that says here is where the courthouse stood, and and you know he's about to be trialed. And the crazy thing is, not not a lot of people are, at least the first group is not really coming out saying, yeah, that was us. Yeah, yeah, he conned us first. Like you know, that, like they're just like, yeah, we're, no, we don't know this guy. We don't know anything about right. it. You know, Never like seen let him. the Never church heard of him. <laughs> exactly. Let the church people deal with this. Let the church people deal with this. And, you know, while he's awaiting really formal trial, um, you have one of his followers who really, I don't understand. I don't, I don't get it. Like they clearly bought into this story, but regardless of the fact that now we know they found the sheet, the dirty sheet. I mean, they, they're like, here you go. Here is your ghost. But someone actually helped him escape from prison. One of his followers actually escaped, helped him escape from prison. You know, and, and, you know, the story of Ransford Rogers kind of ends. And Morristown people could not be more excited to forget about it. Uh, but meanwhile, you know, he goes on, interesting enough, but as I was looking through these old files and, and news newspapers, uh, you know, from 1700s and hard to read, but I'm doing the research, I'm finding this all out. I mean, he went on and did the very similar con again. You know, he does this again in, in New England. Yeah, yeah, um, that's extraordinary, yeah. You know, it's like he's, again, tweaked a little bit here and there, but ultimately same thing. And again, he's about to be caught and then he escapes, you know, so it's like he's and now we never history loses sight of Ransford Rogers. But yet the reason we have this book, the reason we know about this is because, again, perhaps him, um, someone writes and publishes a short pamphlet a year, just a couple years after this event, basically not just explaining what happened, but in like a funny way, ridiculing the the people that were in it, that took part of it. And as opposed to today, when you could just get a book and you could, you know, continue printing on demand, back then, in order for you to publish a pamphlet, you needed to pay someone to set up, you know, the printing press, to set all the tablets. And this was an expensive ordeal. Very and expensive, it was absolutely. Very expensive. And there was only a certain a limited amount, number of these pamphlets that printed the story out. And the original pamphlet, basically called everyone out. It had everyone's name in it, which is why some historians now believe that maybe it was Ransford Rogers that was just like, you know what, guys, like, and here's to you, you know, like, this is what you did to me. So here you go. I'm going to expose you all. And, you know, he was an educated guy. So at the time, it's possible that he wrote this. But again, 
Probably not. Again, we don't know. But the original pamphlet is quickly bought out by every... Like, it's buried. It actually doesn't exist, right? Um, all those members get this pamphlet. They take it away. They don't want their name shunned. Like, this is gone from history. Until someone um, comes about 20 or so, 20, 30 years later, and basically says, I found one of these pamphlets. They exist. But out of respect for these families, I'm going to erase their names. And they republished this pamphlet, but this time missing the original names. So for me, it was kind of like a, I really was playing like Scooby-Doo. It was kind of a little bit of a detective thing for as a historian going, who are these people? How do I find them? And I'm looking through um, birth records. I'm looking through uh, land, you know, deeds. I'm looking through trying to figure out, okay, if this guy lived somewhere here based on this um, and his if he's H.A. are his initials, who was H.A. here? Who owned this land? You know, for me, it was sitting there trying to, like, who are these people? And again, it's insignificant today. <laughs> it's been hundreds of years. But, you know, you'd be surprised. Some of these people that I was able to figure out who they were, I mean, there are streets named after them in, its, you know, in the city of Morristown. <laughs> so, like, these really were yeah, known yeah. members of society. No, and as I was sort of working through those sections of your book, I, I was thinking it must have been so very satisfying to actually connect some of those dots and to be able to say conclusively, you know, there's there, it is not possible to mistake this um, it, these set of initials, you know, for somebody else. We we do know who this person was. You didn't get everybody, but you got a good number of them. Yeah. So that I was, was very how excited. did that feel? Yeah. You know, it really. I mean, it was. It was awesome because I, I felt, first of all, when I wrote this book, um, I wrote it during COVID, like the hardcore COVID lockdowns. So here I am home, uh, you know, we can't go anywhere, no one can go anywhere. And and I'm like really entrenching this story. And I just want, you know, I have to get, like almost give a shout out to a, a historical society, local historical societies, as well as local libraries, because everything I needed, they got for me, you know, uh, Morris County Historical Society. Uh, I'd be like, okay, I kind of want to see what files, I want to see these old newspapers, I want to see what you have. And again, everything's locked at this point. So they're like, all right, we're going to unlock the door for you. You're going to walk into this room on the right, there's going to be a desk, we'll leave the files on it for you, because of social distancing, you know, (laughs) so like, I'm walking into these old historical societies, and they, they gave me these files. And and I'm sitting there and I'm looking through it and I'm taking pictures of what I need to. Um, things are scanned and sent over to me. Uh, libraries, I would pull up to the library and they would it'd be like, open your trunk. And they would bring me, you know, bring me the books I needed uh, from New Jersey collections that normally would not be allowed to be taken out because, you know, these are some of these books are from 1800s, 1700s. So, but they're like, you could have them, just don't break them. I'm like, I won't break them, I promise. You know, so just going through all these documents. Um, for me, it was just so much fun finally hitting the nail on the head. I'm like, this is the guy. I'm like, this is definitely the guy. This is so cool. And then like, I would Google the guy and be like, ha, there's a street named after this guy or there's a park named after this guy. And I'm like, this is definitely the guy. And, it, you know, it was a lot of fun, um, you know, from that perspective. Actually, the interesting enough, the state of New Jersey, um, the you know General Assembly of the state of New Jersey sent me a certificate that I was commended for for discovering oh, wow. new history of, of Morris County. So that oh, came wow. in the mail unexpectedly. That was kind of cool for originating Whoa, new research. So yeah, it was fun. Uh, it was fun. You don't see that every day. You know, uh, Peter, you do, you do say from the outset that there is, in fact, no ghost committing the ghost hoax in your book. But as I read, you know, I became increasingly convinced that there is one ghost in your story, which is this pamphlet, right? The original pamphlet, which seems to sort of flicker in and out of history, um, depending on on the circumstances. And I was wondering, this original account, this firsthand account, which you say is um, was reprinted, you know, years later, and and only secondary versions were examined by later scholars and so forth. Some of which were credible scholars, and that's that we we take that on board. But do you think that there is any chance that this original pamphlet does survive somewhere in an attic, in a cedar chest, in a wardrobe, somewhere? Have you been able to? I don't know, reach out to the citizens of Morris County and sort of put this back on their radar and say, if you have any old volumes, 
you know, that your grandparents or great-great-grandparents left you, take a look and see. Do you think there's any chance? I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually vice president of my local historical society in, in Morris County. It's the town of Denville. And people bring us some things that we feel have been lost for a hundred years, you know, like I found in the attic. So I definitely think that, the, you know, this is, a, this is a question of possibility versus probability. You know, possibly everything's possible, right? Uh, probably, you know, you start thinking like, uh, you know. Um, but I honestly do think that it's very possible that someone might have this pamphlet. It, it, the also good thing is that the historical society in Morris County has the first reprints of the pamphlet, you know, from 1800s that people have donated over the years. Um, I was able to hold one. And I took a picture, put it in a book. Like, I, here I am. Like, look, I got this pamphlet. Um, they have a lot of stuff that ha- they have collected over the years that people have um, over, you know, again, it's been hundreds of years that have just given to them. So it makes me think that if it does exist... I think that in today's world, um, two things might have happened. One, someone said, eh, what is this? And they threw it out. Or if if you see value in it, they would have already given it to the historical society. I mean, for example, we have a, uh, this was a couple of years ago, like maybe four years ago, at the historical society where I volunteer, we received a package with a... Uh, from California, a young couple bought a house in California, and in their attic, while they were just, you know moving things around, they found a box, and in a box they found a meticulously written, kept journal that was kept by a young school teacher from my town of Denville in New Jersey. Um, she decides, she goes, she starts first page. World War One starts. The Great War starts today, and she's like, I'm going to chronicle this war, and she basically gives an account of World War One. From there's letters in there from her boyfriend that goes, you know, to fight, and letters from France that are redacted. There is code that's that she remarkable. comes up with. It was remarkable. There's a code in there that she comes up with with her boyfriend that if I say this, I mean this, you know, in case letters are read. I mean everything. Her whole war in this, and these people found it, and it's on the front. It said Denville. It said Denville throughout the whole thing, and and they they basically put it. They found us online, uh, historical society, and they they mailed it to us. I mean. Something like that, if it was lost, we would never know that history, such an intimate history of a township, of a small town, of a county, and what it meant to, to you know, to go through the first... I mean, she talks in that book about the first ever um, standard, you know, uh, what do you call it, time difference, you know, moving the clocks back. And she talks about uh, prohibition before it was prohibition and temperance movement. It was women voting because that it was around that time. It, again, so... If someone finds it, you would hope that they would do that right thing and send it to the right people, you know, because I guess people do that. Fingers crossed and hope springs eternal. Uh, the last question that I have for you, Peter, is you you write uh, near the end of your book that this is actually a cautionary tale. And now my ent- my favorite scene in the entire narrative is the moment when after con number three, they have tracked Ransford Rogers back to uh, his abode and then find him passed out, still drunk in a barn with the sheet and the tin can next to him, drunk as a skunk, right? And it's just like, you can only imagine what that must've been like in that moment for the folks to have just like, it's it is the Scooby Doo moment, you know, that we have all uh, been been waiting for. Now you write that this is a cautionary tale, and I'm going to wager that the caution is not uh, how to avoid ending up in that kind of situation yourself. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, what what is the caution here for modern readers? What 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 do you want? readers of your book to kind of take home from from this incredible story based on a con, based on a legend, based on a false belief? <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess, you know, the idea that there, I say this to my students all the time as an educator, this, you know, there is no easy way out. You know, there is no, there's no like one way where you could cut corners and you're, oh, you know, you're going to get there. What gets me today is that people want to believe 
like, just uh, let's go with this idea. You know, when people call you at eight o'clock at night and tell you that your car insurance, or, you know, you need new car insurance, or you need, or I'm calling from the IRS, uh, we need your credit card number. And the fact that these calls, and these calls happen all the time, what makes me think is if these people continue calling and saying they're from the IRS and they want my credit card information, or that my warranty is expiring and they need my credit card information, if they continue doing it, that makes me think that people are falling for this. You know, that someone is, someone out there, is actually falling for this because I think they would stop the con if it wasn't working. And it makes me think of almost this idea of like, well, we need to stay educated. We need to um, kind of see through things in a sense that if it's too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true. And if it's if it seems like if it seems like this is not right, just I have that gut feeling. Maybe sometimes you should go with your gut feeling and be like, this is not right. Um, and that you know the chances of us winning the lottery are not really that large you know it's it doesn't mean you can't play but be cognizant just it's so much it's so funny i said this to my children common sense like i don't right i mean that would be the cautionary tale like just just common sense i don't it's surreal to me that this this happened in 1700s but again the fact that people still fall for these these calls and the people give away their credit card information makes you think that that still happens today i just don't understand i i find it surreal well, there is a sucker born every minute, I suppose, and and I have been that sucker at times in my life. So, you know, yeah, I guess we all have, right? Uh, we all have. We all have. We all have. I mean, let me let me um, let me not cast the first stone. Um, you know, if a career in the arts and in history doesn't work out, the takeaway I took home was, you know, there's another line of work out there for us. <laughs> so, uh, That's so right. I appreciate the uh, I appreciate the encouragement, um, Peter. This has just been. A total joy, such a pleasure. I can't, I still can't believe that this happened. I, I just, you know, I, I really cannot believe that your book exists because of how truly marvelous and wonderful it is. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Peter Zablocki, author of The 1788 Morristown Ghost Hoax, The Search for Lost Revolutionary War Treasure, just published by the History Press. To order a copy, visit your local independent bookstore, visit arcadiapublishing.com, or check out our new Crime Capsule show page at bookshop.org slash shop slash crime capsule. Join us again next week as we continue our series on the paranormal with guest Gail Socek. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To learn more about Evergreen offering shows in every genre, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.